Well, this morning we are in the midst of a very short two-week series that we are exploring here at First Presbyterian Church on the riveting topic of the officers of the church. I'm sure that has inspired much excitement in you this morning, but I think that it's a very important topic that we look at for a number of reasons. First of all, those of you who are members here at First Presbyterian Church are going to have the opportunity to nominate and elect elders and deacons starting next Sunday. So you're going to be beginning the nomination process, and then we'll be doing the training process, and then eventually we'll get around to the election process. So for those of you who are members here, it's important for you to have this in mind, because it's important that we elect godly, qualified, and called men to the office of elder and deacon. And last week we looked at the office of elder and exactly what the qualifications and the responsibilities are of elders and what difference that makes for our own lives. We plumbed the depths of several passages of Scripture and we discovered that elders are called to be godly men, men who are living out the implications of the gospel in their life. And they're set apart for ordained service in the church in order to bring the Word of God to bear upon the people of God, to guard her mission, to guard the gospel, to help people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to protect the church from falsehood and error. And they're also called to equip the church for the works of ministry. In other words, they're called to help make disciple-making disciples in the church. So your responsibility in response to the elders is to live out the implications of the gospel in your life and invest in other people's lives so that they will come to treasure Jesus Christ as well. That's what the elders are called to lead in doing. And that is an important task. That's a high calling. And it's important that you nominate qualified men for this position in the church. And the reason why is because the spiritual health of the church almost never surpasses that of the spiritual health of the elders. So we need godly men in those positions who are going to take their responsibility and privilege in that position very seriously for our own growth and grace. But the elders are just one office in the church. There are actually two offices of the church, and we're going to look at the second one this morning, and that is the office of deacon. And we're going to explore what Scripture has to say about the qualifications of deacons and the responsibility of deacons, but we're also going to discover what this matters for our own life when the rubber meets the road, because there is a sense in which the qualities and the responsibilities of deacons ought to be apparent in the life of every Christian. So we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about that, and we're going to look at it from two different passages together this morning. We're going to explore Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to flip forward and see 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So with that in view, let's take a moment now to read the passage in Acts. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, 
and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. So, thus far in Acts 6, you see the establishment of the, di- of the diaconate. You see the elders who are entrusted with the word and prayer ministry of the church, and then you see these deacons, these people who have been set apart in a special way to take care of the service needs of the church as well. So there are two offices that are clearly established there. Now what I want you to do is flip forward with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in this passage, Paul is laying out the qualifications for deacons, what characteristics ought to be apparent in the life of a deacon. It follows right on the heels of what was written about elders that we saw last week. So let's take a look at what he says in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's Word to us this morning. Well, I know I mentioned to many of you in the past uh, about the neighborhood that I grew up in as a child. It was, it was very much kind of like a Mayberry experience. The cars were all new, the lawns were perfectly manicured, the, the homes were beautiful, Everybody was really well educated. And it was, it was kind of like living in a whole zip code full of Republicans. I mean, it was just, it was just how it was. And it was uh, in California of all places, believe it or not. Well, I, I wasn't raised in the church growing up. But when I was about 14, that was the point in my life where God kind of grabbed my soul and enabled me to follow after him. And the pastor who led me to Jesus Christ, who God used in that capacity, was a man who had a deep, deep love for the gospel and a love for people, and especially a love for the poor. And so, as I became more and more involved in church and closer to this man who led me to Christ, I found myself regularly thrust into ministry amongst the poor, amongst the urban poor of Fresno, California. So every summer what we would do is we would go down to the projects, we would go to the inner city, and we would put on church-based vacation Bible schools for the kids there. And then we would help out the adults with just basic home repair and tangible things that we could do to help them. The adults who were with us helped with job training and things of that nature, but we helped out to the degree that we could as well. And I want to suggest to you that this was not a social gospel thing that we were involved with in any capacity. It was a word and and deed-based ministry that was outward-focused, that was intended to bring the gospel to people who have yet to come and believe it. And this was a regular part of my first initial experience with what Christianity was all about. The pastor who we worked with, who was the person who led me to Jesus Christ, never let us forget 
that although we may be materially better off than the people that we were working with in the inner city, the great equalizer among us all is that we were spiritually poor and destitute beyond our wildest imaginations. In fact, we could have materially vastly beyond what anybody could begin to imagine, vastly beyond what our hopes and ambitions could ever be. But without Christ, we were as impoverished as we could ever begin to guess. Our souls were lost and we were completely disabled apart from Christ. But if we had Christ, whether we were materially rich or poor, we were abundantly rich spiritually. We were vastly more rich than we could ever begin to ask, hope, or imagine if we had Christ at the center of our lives. And friends, I want to just suggest to you that that's the message of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is about that message. It's about the very life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ telling us that we are poor, destitute, disabled people and that by resting in His work for us alone in the Gospel, we become abundantly spiritually rich. That's what we have. That's what He's given us in the Gospel. Christians are people who know experientially that they are people in in need of deep, deep mercy. And they're people that know that they have received that mercy because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what He's done for us in the Gospel. Because what Jesus has done is He has set our souls free from slavery. He set us free from bondage and the condemnation that that sin brings to us. And He's given us eternal hope. And it's all happened because Jesus Christ came and took the initiative to intervene in our lives and extend sovereign mercy to us. Jesus absorbed our debt. He absorbed our condemnation. And He did it not because we were so virtuous or because we were raised the right way or because we came from the right church background. He did it despite all of our failures. He did it despite all of our sin. And because that's the case, mercy is right at the very heart of what Christianity is all about. It's right at the very heart of it. And that has everything to do with deacons. It has everything to do with it. You would think that since Jesus went and preached the good news, brought the Word of God to bear upon the, wor- the world, and He also cared for the tangible, physical needs of people as well, you would think that the way in which He leads the church these days would be by establishing two offices to do exactly what He did. One, to bring the Word of God to bear upon the church, and the other, to specifically deal with the tangible, practical needs that people have as well. And so the nature of the diaconal office is grounded in the very nature of Christ Himself and what the Gospel is all about. Because the cross was an actual, tangible way in which Jesus gave expression and did something about our problem, about our poverty, about our disability. And deacons, who are people who live their life in the vein of who Jesus Christ is and what He's done for us in the Gospel, are men who work to extend practical, tangible acts of love and mercy to the church in ways that resemble Jesus' love and mercy to us in the Gospel. And they're the ones that take the lead in that in the congregation. They take the lead in that. But when it's all said and done, these are things that begin to overflow in the life of every single Christian. Because every single Christian is called to extend mercy, 
to practically love and participate and help in, in bringing the gospel to bear in a tangible way upon people's lives. And this is what we see actually laid forth out for us in a whole bunch of places in Scripture, not the least of which is the book of James. Jesus' brother, he writes about this in James chapter 2, that there's to be a connection between our words of believing the gospel and our actual lives, a word and deed-based life that reflects the gospel. And this is what he says in James chapter 2. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so here's the point. The point is that prayer, reading of Scripture, worshiping together with God's people on the Lord's day and in our regular day-to-day lives, taking the gospel to our friends and neighbors. That is all absolutely essential. But it's incomplete if there is no practical, tangible service that we go on extending to people as a result. And the reason why that's the case is because our faith is a very practical, tangible faith. Jesus cared for the whole person, didn't he? He cared not only for the soul, although that is preeminent, but he also cared for the body. He cared for people's physical needs. And so deacons in the church are called to model and equip the church to extend love and mercy to one another, both within the church and outside of her walls. And so when you look at the passage that we just read here in Acts chapter 6, you discover that the diaconal office is established in response to a need of the church and out of the character of Christ and the gospel. What you're seeing here in this passage in Acts chapter 6 is the fact that there was a conflict that arose in the church. This conflict was between the Greek-speaking widows and the Hebrew-speaking widows. The Greek-speaking widows felt as if they were being discriminated against in the food distribution of the church. It was the responsibility of the church to distribute food to these widows who had no means of acquiring that for themselves. And the, Greek, the Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against. And this was an acute problem in the church. It was going to cause division. And so the elders, the overseers of the church, had the congregation, the, the disciples, the full measure of them, nominate seven men amongst their body to help serve in this practical need. And so what happened is they nominate these seven men, the elders set them apart by the laying on of hands, which is ordination, and these men go on to serve these widows. And the the Greek word for serve, by the way, is an important word for you to know, it is diakonin, where we get the word deacon. A deacon is a servant. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Why didn't the elders just deal with this problem themselves? I mean, they're the elders of the church. Why didn't they just go about handling this problem between these two groups of widows who were at each other's necks? Well, the reason why is because it would have caused them to have had to have neglected the ministry of the word and prayer. It would have had to have enabled them to Uh, to neglect that ministry. 
And they didn't want to neglect that ministry. So they set apart another set of men to deal with the, the basic needs that these women had. And what we discover here is that a, both a word-based and a deed-based ministry in the local church are absolutely essential. We cannot say that we are caring for people by simply giving them the gospel and paying no attention whatsoever to their practical needs. That is false religion. James says it is dead faith. But on the other hand, we can't go about adopting the deeds, not creeds, motto either. You may have seen on the, the news in some places and sometimes where there are churches that occasionally will uh, not have their Sunday morning worship service together on that day, and instead of having their Sunday morning worship service, they will go somewhere out into the community to serve that community in some practical way. And in many respects, I admire that, because they are taking very seriously the need to tangibly bring uh, help to people in their community. But the problem with that is that they are neglecting the means that God uses to grow his people in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we can't ignore the truth and the grace of the gospel just for the sake of, ministry, of mercy. It's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and thing. And so what we need in this church, and what we need in churches all over the coast here and all around the world, our church is committed to both the, the physical and the spiritual health of her people. It's absolutely essential. One of the great men that we have in our denomination in the Presbyterian Church in America is a man by the name of Harry Reeder. He's the pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And he's written a lot and researched a lot about churches, about revitalizing churches, about healthy churches, and about unhealthy churches. And one of the things that he's found in unhealthy churches is that pastors are doing all of the work that the elders are supposed to do, and they're remarkably burnt out. The, the elders are doing the work that the deacons are supposed to be doing, and the deacons are just doing something. That's what he's discovered in many unhealthy churches. And they're unhealthy because that's not the way that God has designed the church to be. The elders are to care specifically for the spiritual life of the church to bring Christ, to bring his work for them, to bear upon their lives so that the people will grow to treasure Christ more than they treasure anything else in the world. And the deacons are called to serve the church and equip the church to serve one another in very practical, tangible ways. They have different ministries. And those ministries are called to complement each other. They're called to bring the fullness of the gospel in both word and in deed. So that means that deacons are not junior elders or assistant elders. They're not the people that you get into this menial office first so they can have a training ground and eventually graduate and get promoted to the office of elder. That is not a biblical way of thinking of the office of deacon. Deacons complement the word and prayer-based ministry of the elders. And it also means that deacons have a responsibility to the church that extends way beyond, way beyond dealing simply with the building and the budget. Most churches who have deacons, their deacons are dealing strictly with the building and the budget. And that's an important thing to deal with, those two things. Because I really like being in a building where the roof isn't leaking. 
and where the air conditioning works when the heat index is 119 degrees in the summertime and when we have frost on the roof like we did this morning having the heater work. Those are important things. And it's important to have our budget all straightened out. But believe it or not, when you look at Scripture, those are not even close to being the front burner issues upon which deacons are to be dealing with. When you look at Acts chapter 6, you see that deacons are called to come alongside relationally to the people in the church who have very specific, practical needs, and they're called to meet those needs, and they're called to equip the church to help each other meet those needs as well. Deacons have that role, that privilege, that responsibility for caring for people's practical needs, serving people, helping people, extending mercy to people. And so it's a very relational, hands-on kind of ministry. Of course it's good to have deacons who are financial wizards and are handymen. Those are really good things and, and things that we should desire, but much, much more importantly than that, we need to have men who care about people and love people and the very practical, messy, ambiguous, difficult areas of their lives and who are getting involved to help them in that way. And the reason why is because deacons are men who know that the gospel both exposes and deals with their own spiritual poverty and inability. They know that. That's a reality in their life. And because they know that, it's going to drive them to serve the church in these practical ways. These kind of men that you see here in Acts chapter 6, the passage that we just read, are men who have been humbled by the gospel. They've seen their poverty. They've seen their inability. And it enables them to go and invest in the lives of these widows who are people who have nothing, who have very, very messy lives, and go and serve a practical need that they have. That's what they do. And it requires godly character. A man who's going to do something like that has to be a godly man walking with his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we see, when we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, that second passage that we read together this morning, we see what some of those characteristics are going to look like, some of those qualifications. And at the bottom of it all, the qualifications that God has for deacons are that they are living out the implications of the gospel in the practical, ordinary aspects of their lives. So that means that they're going to be dignified men. They're going to be men who aren't devious. They're going to be men who speak words that have the flavor of Christ on them. They're going to be men who are not addicted to things. They're not going to be greedy people. They're going to be people who can manage their household well, who love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. They're going to be people who raise their children and the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And they're going to have godly wives who actually qualify them for that office. In other words, the whole underlying foundation there is that godliness in their personal and in their home life is remarkably important. And part of the reason why is because so many of the practical problems that you and I face in this life stem, at least in some measure, because we have made unwise, ungodly, foolish decisions where Christ was not really at the center of that. And if deacons are going to be the ones who are coming alongside 
and providing spiritual help and practical help in those particular areas where we are suffering, where we are struggling, where we are in need, they're going to need to be godly, wise men who are going to be able to care for those particular needs. That doesn't mean that a deacon has to be perfect. Because as I said last week about elders, you're not going to find any perfect people in the church, not even close. All you're going to find is a bunch of messed up people. But you're going to find messed up deacons who have come to grips with that, who see these qualifications and they see themselves as messed up. But they're going to be looking to Jesus Christ and they're going to be taking their sin and placing it upon the cross. And they're going to be renewed by the grace of God that's available to them in the Gospel. And as a result, they're going to be living godly, holy, Christ-centered, Gospel-focused lives as a result. And they're going to be taking that ministry, that, that reality, and transferring it into the practical, tangible ministries that they bring to people in the church. And that's why you want godly men in that office. Look, I don't think that anybody here wants to be taking marriage advice from Larry King. Just my personal opinion. And I don't think that you want a deacon who is not actively living out the gospel in his life, repenting of his sin, living in light of the grace of God, and loving people and extending mercy to people, serving in that office. He doesn't belong there. He needs time to mature and time to lay hold of that gospel in his life. Deacons are imperfect in every way, but they're constantly looking to the gospel and being renewed by that grace. Well, there's one more thing that Paul wants us to zero in on when we're considering deacons. And he's saying that Paul, or Paul is saying that the deacons need to be men who have been tested first. They're men who have been tested for that. All of the officers, elders and deacons alike, go through a rigorous officer training course before they are elected to the office that they are about to hold. We want them to have a competency for that office. But as far as it depends upon you, you need to be thinking about whether the man has been tested first in your own midst. When you're thinking about a deacon, you you need to ask, who in this church is already to some extent, doing the work of a deacon, even though he doesn't have the title? Who's already doing that? That is an important question to ask. Because it's not like you just pick a nice guy in the church, nominate him as a deacon, he gets trained, he gets ordained, and just like that, he starts being a deacon. Because you can't just make someone deacon. It's something that God already works out in a person's life and begins to show before the person even has that office. And so you're thinking about who in this church is already serving people in very practical and tangible ways? Who's already expressing a merciful heart? When you're thinking about elders, you're thinking about who here is already showing signs that he can teach, that loves the gospel and can articulate that and bring it to bear upon our lives? Who's already living that out in his home life and in his personal life and seeking to help people grow? See, it, it's just not enough that a, that a guy knows a lot of theological stuff and that he comes to church three out of four Sundays out of the month and that he's a nice guy. 
It's important that a person showing signs of being able to fill this office before he even has it. Now we're just about done, but before we finish up, I want you to look at a short passage with me in Acts chapter 2. It's on page 910 of your pew Bible. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at beginning in verse 42. And many of you will be familiar with this passage. It's a beautiful description of what a normal church ought to look like. It's, it's what a normal church looks like. In many respects, it may be a foreign concept to many of us uh, in light of our church backgrounds. But this is what church ought to look like. And I want you to listen to what Luke writes about this church beginning in verse 42. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So this is a church that is built upon the Word, built upon what we call the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary ways in which God goes about fueling His grace in our lives. The Word of God, the Lord's Supper that we're going to be sharing together this morning, and prayer. Those three things were acutely common in this particular church. But then look what happens as well. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were caring for the needs of one another in the church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then look what happens as a result. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a remarkable description of a godly, gospel-centered church. It's few and far between that you'll find churches these days who love the gospel so much in word that they're actually living it out in deed that they're living it out in such radical ways where they're saying, you know what? I'm not going to think about myself first. I'm not going to think primarily about that vacation that I want to take or that card that I want to buy or that thing that I've told myself that I have to have. What I'm going to think about first is my brothers and sisters in this church and what they need and how I can come alongside them and help them with that need. I'm going to give over my life for the practical needs of my brothers and sisters in the local church. That would be an unusual church right there. You could drop an atomic bomb on most cities in this country and not hit a church that looks like that. But my question to you, First Prez, is what if our church began to look more and more and more like the church that we see here in Acts chapter 2? What if we began to look more and more like that? And if we stopped with this Christianity is an add-on to my life load of nonsense 
And we actually gave over our lives for others in response to how Jesus Christ has given over His life for us. If the Gospel riveted us to such a way that it would lead us to care for the practical, tangible needs that our brothers and sisters have in this church. I'll tell you what, if we start living like that in this church, we're going to find ourselves having to plant another church in Biloxi soon. Because that's the kind of Christianity that's attractive and contagious and real. And friends, that's why what God has to say about elders and deacons is so important. Because the elders are leading you to treasure Jesus Christ more than you treasure anything else. And the deacons are called to lead you to serve and give and love and extend mercy in the way that Christ has extended mercy to you. Let's come before him now in prayer and ask him that he would lead us such men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your church is led fundamentally by you, that you are the head of the church, that you guard her, protect her, lead her, guide her towards you and your good news to us. We thank you that you call your church to be a place that not only centers upon your good news to us, but lives that out in very practical ways. And Lord, we need men who are going to lead us like that. We need men who are going to lead us to treasure Jesus Christ and to serve one another. And may we, pr- we pray, Lord, that that may happen here in this very church. That First Presbyterian Church would be a place that reflects the beauty of that church that we see in Acts 2. And that it would happen for our growth in grace and for the sake of those who have yet to come to know you and most importantly, for your glory. We pray this all in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.